Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with a dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is obviously a battle song of the people of Israel, a battle song as they're preparing to go out to war against their enemies, and a battle song which uh, expresses their complete confidence in victory in the battle to come, and is a psalm of rejoicing in that anticipated victory. And for us, therefore, in the New Testament, it is a song of war as we go out to uh, battle against the nations of the world by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ using the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The psalm has a kind of chiastic structure to it. If you look at the word saints in the psalm, it occurs three times. It occurs in verse 1, his praise in the assembly of saints. It occurs also in verse 9, this honor have all his saints. And it occurs in the center verse of the psalm, let the saints be joyful in glory. And this uh, central verse then divides the psalm into two parts, really. In the first half, we have a call to praise, to praise the Lord. And in the second part of the psalm, a call to go out to battle. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. The psalm is therefore a hortatory psalm, a psalm which exhorts us to things, and it exhorts us to two things, to praise the Lord and to go out in his service to fight the battle of faith. We're going to look at the psalm under the theme, The Triumph of the Saints, and we're going to look first at that call to praise, as we see it in verses 1 to 5, and then we're going to work at the look at the call to war as we see it in verses 5 to 9. Let's begin by looking at the different ways that the psalm calls us to praise the Lord. There are a number of different uh, expressions here in this uh, psalm that are uh, that we need to pay attention to. And the first one of them is found in verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
Now, I like the interpretation of that term, new song, that Robert Godfrey gives to that in his book, Learning to Love the Psalms. He says, a new song is not necessarily a newly written song, but is a song that celebrates God's new work. A song that celebrates God's old work would be a song that celebrates his work of creation and his work of providence. Psalm 104, for example, might fall into this category. It's a psalm about the providence of God in his creation. But there are many songs, of course, in the uh, Old Testament and some as well in the New Testament, which we can call new songs because they celebrate the work of salvation, because they celebrate God's recreation. They celebrate God's calling of us, God's shaping of us to be new creatures, and God's work of remaking heaven and earth until finally he destroys this old heaven and earth and creates for us a new dwelling place in the heavenly creation. So this is a song then that belongs to the redemptive work of God, to the saving work of God. And that's very clear too when you look at this song. You can see this term new song in a number of other psalms. If you want to make a note of these, Psalm 33, Psalm 40, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, and Psalm 144. There's also reference to it in Isaiah 42 and in Revelation chapter 5 and 14. So that's the first thing. We are to praise the Lord with a new song, a song that celebrates his redeeming and saving work, his recreating work. The second thing we want to notice about this praise is that the psalm uses three different words for rejoicing. You find those words, first of all, in verse 2, let Israel rejoice in their maker, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king, and then in verse 5, let the saints be joyful in glory. In the Hebrew, those are three different words, and I think it pays uh, dividends for us to look at those three different words very briefly to see the difference in uh, connotation between them. The first of those words certainly suggests the idea of praising God with our mouths, being joyful, singing a joyful song with our mouths from a joyful and thankful heart. The second of those words, though, suggests movement of the body, And so the theological word book of the Old Testament suggests that we might translate this word as circle in joy. And another Hebrew translation or Hebrew dictionary suggests leap for joy. Let the children of Zion leap for joy in their king. There's the exuberance of this joy that expresses itself then in bodily movement. And we remember, of course, that some of those whom Uh, Jesus and his apostles healed, leapt for joy when the work of grace was done in them. And then the last uh, reference to joy in verse 5 is a word that means to exult or to triumph. Let the saints be 
triumphant, or let the saints exult in glory. And in the context of the psalm, a context of battle, that's certainly an appropriate word to use. So you get those different uh, shades of meaning in those words that refer to rejoicing. Also in verse 5, you have the uh, term sing aloud, let them sing aloud on their beds, or shout aloud on their beds, is really the Hebrew there. Let them shout aloud on their beds. And that's a very interesting thing, isn't it? He calls us in the privacy of our bedrooms at night on our beds to be shouting. That's not what you would expect. You would expect joyful meditation, perhaps, but not joyful shouting. So that's uh, um, another piece of this. Then you have uh, in this also the idea of dancing. Verse 3, let them praise his name with the dance. Now I want to take a few minutes here to talk about this concept of dancing in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. And the first thing we should note about this is that there's no evidence throughout the whole of the scriptures that there was any dancing in the tabernacle or the temple, in the formal worship of God's people. There was singing, there was a playing of harps and sounding of cymbals and the sounding of trumpets, but there was not dancing. And I think that this implies, therefore, that what we call today liturgical dance does not really have a place in the worship of God's church today. But this idea of dancing, besides in this psalm, does have uh, various uh, positive references in the Old Testament. So, for example, we find Miriam and the women of Israel singing and dancing after God's great victory over Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. They danced. Miriam and the women danced. In Judges chapter 11, Jephthah's daughter came out to meet him with dancing when he was returning from his victory over the Ammonites. In 1 Samuel 18, the women of Israel met Saul and David with dancing when they came back from the slaughter of Goliath and the Philistines. And they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And in 2 Samuel 6, we find David dancing with all his might before the ark of the Lord as he's bringing that ark from its exile back into the company of the people of Israel to the city of Jerusalem. Notice that in all of these contexts, this is dancing in connection with victory, victory over enemies. Even David's uh, dancing is associated with warfare against his enemies in Psalm 132. Psalm 132 which is the great psalm that celebrates the return of the ark to Jerusalem. He says in the very last verse, his enemies I will clothe with shame. And that's because in a very real sense, God was marching triumphantly with that ark to take up his residence among his people and was, as he marched, overcoming his enemies so that those enemies could not prevent him from accomplishing his purpose with his people. 
So you have this dancing. But there are also negative references to dancing in the Old Testament. One very clear reference is Exodus chapter 32, when we read that Israel, as she was worshiping the golden calf that Aaron had made, danced, committed fornication, and feasted before that golden calf. These things were all part of their worship of that golden calf. Clearly, a very negative conception of dancing. And another possible negative reference is in Judges chapter 21. Israel had destroyed all the tribe of Benjamin, men, women, and children, except for 600 soldiers who had taken refuge in a secure place. And after Israel was finished destroying the tribe, or nearly destroying the tribe, they had regrets, and they said, how are we going to save this tribe of Benjamin? There are no wives for these uh, soldiers of Benjamin to marry even. They had even sworn that they would not give their daughters as wives to the men of Benjamin. And so one of, part of their solution was to have some of the men of Benjamin hide in the bushes when the daughters of Shiloh came out to perform a dance, some kind of festival dance, and to steal some of those daughters of Shiloh as wives for themselves. In the context, it seems to me, of the great uh, apostasy and wickedness of Israel in the period of the judges, that was probably some kind of pagan festival or um, at least ungodly dancing that these daughters of Shiloh were doing. Though we perhaps can't be certain about that. Nowhere in the scriptures do we find men and women dancing together. And I think the church has rightly, in the past anyway, rejected that form of dancing as sexually provocative and inappropriate for Christians. So that's the dancing part of it. We are to dance, he says. And we'll come back to that briefly in a moment. In the, uh, finally, we have in the last part of verse 3, let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. Now if you look up that word timbrel in the Old Testament, or tambourine as some would translate it, it's a percussion instrument that it was used primarily with the dancing. You read of it in connection with Miriam and the women's dancing at the Red Sea. You read of it again with Jephthah's daughter. She had a timbrel as she was dancing in celebration of that victory. It's a, a, a rhythmic instrument, therefore, that's appropriate in that setting of dance. And the harp, of course, is an instrument that accompanies especially song. So we have singing and dancing, and we have the instruments that go along with those two exercises. In all these different ways, we are to be praising the Lord. Praise Him with a new song. Praise Him by leaping for joy. Praise Him by shouting aloud. Praise Him with your mouth as well as with your body. Praise Him in the dance. Praise Him with timbrel and harp. Another thing that we should note then about this praise is that it's located, according to the psalm, in different places. So we find in verse 1, 
in the assembly of the saints. That's the congregation of the people of God, the, the gathering of the people of God. Let them praise his name in the assembly of the saints. In a setting, therefore, of formal worship. But in verse 5, as we've already noted, it's singing on their beds in a very private setting, an individual setting even. And I think the whole matter of dancing, as we discussed it, indicates another public setting, but not the worship of God. So in every place and at all times, during the night as well as during the day, be praising the Lord. Now, a couple of other things yet about that praise. First of all, the object of our praise. The psalm uses two of the very common names for God, Yahweh and God. But it uses also some less common names, and we'll pay uh, particular attention to those. It calls him, first of all, Israel's maker. Verse 2, let Israel rejoice in their maker Now that is not a reference to the creation of man at the beginning, as recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. That is a reference to God forming the nation of Israel to be his people. That language of creation is used in the scriptures of God's forming his people. We'll give just one example of it from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. Let that people whom God has created to be his own people call upon him. He is their maker. And then in that same verse, we also have a reference to the Lord as king. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. And this again is particularly fitting for this psalm, which is a psalm of triumph. And the king, of course, would be the one to lead them in battle and to um, uh, make the plans that were necessary and to take the chief part of the spoil of the enemies. And that king is, of course, in this psalm, the king of Israel, God himself, or our Lord Jesus Christ, who goes before his people, who is the captain of the Lord's host, and who fights against them. He goes forth conquering and to conquer because he is king of kings and lord of lords. And then finally, we should notice about this praise, who it is who are called to praise here. And what we'll see about all the different references to who is called to praise is that they refer narrowly to the people of God. This is not a call to universal praise such as we find in Psalm 148. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, Psalm 148, verse 11. But here a call specifically to the people of God. Let them praise the Lord. And they too are given names. We've already noted that name, saints, that occurs three times, the most prominent name for them in this psalm. That's an interesting word there. 
For us, of course, that word saints is derived from the Latin sanctus, which means holy, holy ones. And in the New Testament, you have a word that for the saints that is derived from the Greek word for holiness. So it usually has reference to holiness. And there is an Old Testament word that is about holiness. When we read, for example, in Psalm 2 about God's holy hill of Zion, that's the Hebrew word for holiness. That's not the word we have here. And what we have here is a different word, and this is the word which, a word which comes from the same root as that word which we like to translate as loving kindness, or kindness, and which some of the modern translations translate as steadfast love. And the theological word book of the Old Testament says of this word then that we have translated here as saints, that it means either those who are recipients of God's loving kindness or those who practice that loving kindness of God towards others. And I think it's the latter. When you look at the uses of this word in the Psalms especially, but in other passages of Scripture, it seems to emphasize the idea of godliness, of faithfulness, of piety, or of being saints. It is the practice of loving kindness, that is, the practice of that love which the law of God commands us, love for our neighbors, and love also for God himself. These, then, are those who practice the loving kindness of God in their own lives. Secondly, they are called Israel. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. That's a name that they received from their father Jacob, to whom God gave that name originally when Jacob wrestled with him at Peniel and prevailed over him. God then gave him the name Prince with God, the one who prevailed over God. And that's the name that uh, Israel, the people of Jacob, people descended from Jacob, inherited from him. They are the people who prevail with God. And they are the chosen people, that is, the people whom he has taken to be his own people out of all the nations of the world, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, as he calls the Gentiles to become a part of that nation. That's conveyed to us especially in the next name that we find, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Now the children of Zion are first of all simply the residents or the inhabitants of that city. But it's a name that belonged not only to those who had houses there in the city of Jerusalem in Zion, but to all of Israel because that was the heart of their land. That was the place where their God lived, and that was the place where they themselves lived with their God. They were all children of Zion, therefore, and theoretically, or spiritually anyway, uh, citizens of Zion. Zion was a fortress, and I think that idea also enters into 
this. Zion was that impregnable fortress whose strength and beauty is celebrated in Psalm 48. Zion was very strong, a defensible place, a place of refuge and security for the people of God. They are children of Zion in that they have security then from their enemies there in that place. But there's another thing, I think, in that, that we should recognize, and that is that children of Zion really means, I think, perhaps even primarily means, that they have their spiritual birth there in that city. And that's what we sang about in Psalm 87. You remember, Psalm 87 says that all these people from foreign nations, from Tyre and Ethiopia and Babylon and so on, were born in Zion. They were born there. And then the psalm ends, all my fountains are in you. That is, all my beginnings are in Zion. The nations of the world are born in Zion, in Psalm 87. They have their spiritual birth there, in that city of God. So children of Zion means those who have their spiritual birth, not their natural birth necessarily, but their spiritual birth in the city of God, in his church, in other words. They are called also his people in verse 4, the people whom he has chosen and whom he has brought near to himself. And finally, they are called his, uh, the afflicted or the humble in verse 4. He will beautify the humble with salvation. They are the humble or the afflicted. This nation of Israel, though honored greatly by God, though made his chosen people, though given that glorious name, Israel, though children of Zion, is not a people that's glorious in itself, not a people numerous in itself, not a people great and attractive in itself. It's a small, afflicted, poor, humble people just as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is also made up of the meek and the humble and the afflicted in the New Testament times. Spiritually meek and humble and afflicted. So those are the names, and those are the people, notice, those are the people whom the psalm calls to this praise. Not all the nations, in this particular case, but the people, the children of Zion, the church of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we also have in these first verses the reasons for this praise. Verse 4, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people, he will beautify the humble with salvation. That word takes pleasure is very rich in its connotations. It's a very rich word, and we're going to make some references to Scripture here to show how rich that word is. It means, in the first place, accepted. Accepted by the Lord. The Lord accepts His people. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, there are many other references in Leviticus uh, to this uh, same idea, but 1, verse 4 is the first of them. 
Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. It's the same word we have here in Psalm 149. It will be accepted on his behalf, the sacrifice. And I think it fits in very nicely, doesn't it, into the psalm. We are accepted by the Lord. But we are accepted by the Lord because the Lord has accepted a substitute sacrifice for us in the judgment, that eternal Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We are accepted by Him. Secondly, that word conveys the notion of favor. God favors his people. And the idea of that word favor is that it is a distinguishing favor. It is a favor that he shows to no other people. He blesses that people and only that people with the rich and glorious blessings of the new creation, of the heavenly kingdom, of the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. They are the ones who are favored above all others. And finally, it also means to delight in. To delight in. In 1 Chronicles 29, just to give one example of that, 29 verse 17, this is David uh, at the time of his uh, informing the people of the plans about the building of the temple I know also, my God, he's praying that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness or take delight in uprightness. So you have both this idea of acceptance, the idea of favor, and the idea of delight. And though the passage does not use the word, that word, We see that delight of God in his people in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. A wonderful verse, by the way, um, that speaks of God's delight in his people. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love, and I think it should be Uh, better. He will be quiet in his love, in his love for you. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's the delight of the Lord in his people. He delights in them as a father delights in his newborn child. All of those things are contained then in that uh, first Part of verse 4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. But the second reason is given in the second part of that verse, he will beautify the humble with salvation. And of course, first of all, that means he will save them. And in the context of this psalm particularly, that he will save them from their enemies. He will save them from Satan and all his hosts. He will save them from the whole of the wicked world, which stands in opposition to himself and to the cause of his people and their righteousness here in the world. They will be saved. But in saving them, he beautifies them. What a wonderful idea. They are not beautiful in themselves. They are ugly in themselves. But his salvation beautifies them. There's a passage in Ezekiel 16 which talks about this work of beautification. And it's a fairly long passage, but I 
would like to read it to you anyway because it uh, puts such an emphasis on this whole idea of beautifying. It begins in Ezekiel 16, verse 3. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by and you and saw you struggling in your blood, you see all the ugliness of the people of God there in that uh, first part of the chapter. But God comes by and he says, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, For it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. He beautifies his people with salvation. He beautifies them especially, of course, when he clothes them with the righteousness of Christ. With his own righteousness, his own splendor. And in beautifying them, he makes for himself a bride glorious in her beauty. Those are the reasons, then, why this praise is to be offered. He takes pleasure in his people. He beautifies the humble with salvation. Now, in the second part of the psalm, verses 5 and following, we have a call to war, as we said. We've already dealt with most of verse 5 in connection with the first part of the psalm. But there's one little point there in verse 5 which we haven't touched on. Let the saints be joyful in glory, it says. And I think that this is, first of all, a reference back to that beauty with which he adorns them. In the glory that he has given to them. Let them be joyful in that glory. But in the context of this psalm, that glory is more the glory of a warrior than the glory of a woman, than the glory of a bride. It's the glory of a man in the fullness of his strength. It's the glory of a man uh, armed with beautiful armor. It's a 
glory of a man who's been trained to the point of perfection in his uh, work of warfare. And he stands, therefore, in his glory. And the psalm says to us, to the saints, be joyful in that glory that God has given to you, with which God has clothed you. But then notice also how in verse 6, that call to praise merges directly into the call to war. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and the two-edged sword in their hand. And so what we have to see here is a great warrior, a great host of warriors, in fact, going out to war, clothed with their beautiful armor, carrying a sword. And as they go out, singing this song of praise and other such war songs of the people of God. They are going out then with triumphant songs on their lips because the victory is already assured to them. They know that they cannot be defeated in this warfare. So the song of triumph begins with their warfare, before their warfare is over. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and the two-edged sword in their hand. That word high praises is also uh, an interesting word. It's not very often found in the Old Testament. There's a form of it in Psalm 66, verse 7, 17 rather, Psalm 66, verse 17, where we have this. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. Perhaps we could even translate it here as let the extollings of God be in their mouth. And a two-edged sword in their hand. We see this army of warriors then going out, equipped with the sword, to execute vengeance on the nations, this little nation of Israel, going out against all the nations and all the peoples around, all the peoples and nations that belong to their world and executing on these nations and peoples vengeance, the vengeance of God. Executing that vengeance of God, as, for example, Israel did when she conquered the land of Canaan under Joshua, or as the armies of Israel did under David when they defeated the surrounding enemies of the nation of Israel, as they did on other occasions when the people of Israel went out to war. They were engaged in spiritual warfare. Their warfare was warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It was warfare in the cause of God, in the cause of righteousness. It was warfare against wickedness and against evil. It was warfare against Satan and his hosts, as well as against the wicked world. And they are going out then with the high praises of God in their mouth to execute God's vengeance on those who hate him and who oppose him and who are enemies of his people. They also take captives to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. They take the kings and the nobles of these nations, prisoners, with them and then execute, even on those kings and nobles, the judgment of God, to execute on them the written judgment. Again, you have the psalm slipping in here, a significant word, 
the written judgment. Not just judgment in general, but the written judgment. I think the point is this, first of all, is the judgment of God prophesied against those nations. But it's also the judgment of God ordained in his eternal counsel against all those who are not his. It is the judgment, therefore, that he has written and that he has declared from all eternity. And Israel, his nation, his people, the saints, have the honor of participating with God in executing his vengeance on those nations. This honor have all his saints and are to praise the Lord as they take their part in that execution of vengeance. Now, how does that fit into the New Testament? Well, it fits in in this way, that we are soldiers in the army of God, a part of the hosts of God. Revelation 19, verse 14, talks about this. There are other passages as well, but Revelation 19, verse 14, we see a picture there of our Lord Jesus Christ riding on a white horse. His name is written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he goes out bearing a great sword. That sword, he wields that sword against the nations, but with him, according to Revelation 19, verse 14, are all the hosts of heaven. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The hosts of heaven, his own people, and the angels too, perhaps, are included in that, go out with him in this great warfare. But how do they fight? They fight as they are equipped with the armor of God, and as God puts in their hands the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That is their weapon. They prevail by the gospel. The weapons of their warfare are not carnal, but are spiritual. To the casting down of the strongholds of wicked, to the changing of all the thoughts and philosophies of men, to the destruction of all the rebellion of men against God. It is the gospel that we see victorious, and it is in the gospel that we see the triumph of the saints. As the saints proclaim the gospel, they become triumphant, triumphant over the nations. They execute the vengeance of God upon those nations. Again, let's look at a few passages in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 2, two first of all, towards the end of that chapter, it's... Uh, Verse 15, for, uh, verse 14, rather, now thanks be to God 
who always leads us in triumph, note that word, in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Or 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 4, but then jumping down from verse 4 to verse 7, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And verse 7 then, as part of that commendation by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Or 2 Corinthians 10, to which we referred a moment ago, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We see the saints then triumphing, but triumphing through the gospel, through the proclamation of the gospel. It's not a physical warfare. It's not a political warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. It's a warfare that is accomplished by the proclamation of the gospel, by the bearing of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That gospel is triumphant, and it is triumphant in Christ our Lord. And so it is we who sing this psalm in this New Testament time to praise our God, to exalt in Him, and to anticipate with certain hope, sure hope, the perfection of our victory and glory in the heavenly kingdom and the new creation of heaven and earth when our Lord returns. But while we are here, in this troubled world, in this world full of wickedness and increasingly full of wickedness, we achieve victory. We achieve victory by the gospel and by no other means than the gospel. May God bless his word for us.